don't know if you ever have those situations where you make a decision to do something and then you regret it several months later. Well, I have to say I'm on one of those decisions this morning, just before Christmas. I thought it'd be great to do one week in Song of Songs to finish up our series on the wisdom literature. I hadn't planned it very well because I'd been away at a minister's conference most of the week. And then I opened the passage later in the week and thought, what on earth am I going to say about this? You'll see why when I read it to you in a moment. Um, just to say that Song of Songs is quite um, a sexual and explicit book. Um, so I don't think there are any children in the room, but just to say if you have got children with you, you may want to take them to groups. None of what I talk about will be explicit in any way. Please don't worry. So let's turn to our Bibles. It's page 648, and I'm going to read chapter 6. Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. You are as beautiful as Tizra, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is missing. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be and eighty concubines and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? I went down to the grove of nut trees to look for the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budged or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Come back, come back, O Shomalite woman, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? Interesting words, aren't they? You can see why I regret, in some ways, thinking about preaching on this passage. But here's the question. What on earth do we do with Song of Songs? What on earth do we do with this book that is 3,000 years old, that is full of, at times, highly sexual and erotic language. And that was the tamest chapter. That's the reason I picked that chapter. Read the whole of it. You will see why. What is it about, and what do we do with it? It's a question, really, that has perturbed, first of all, Jewish scholars in the years ahead of Christ's birth, and then Christian theologians, Bible teachers, um, and, and the like. And people have taken all kinds of varied approaches to it. But the basis of our interpretation always needs to be, what did it originally mean? What is it in the Bible for? What does God say through it? Not what do we want it to say? So right back to the history of the early church, back to the second and third centuries, um, some of the church fathers of the names of Oregon and Gregory of Nyssa, we don't have names like that anymore, do we? But Gregory of Nyssa, they would write on this book and they would say, well, this book isn't about sex. It's not an erotic series of love poems. But in fact, 
It's an allegory. Now, what is an allegory? Well, an allegory is when you read something and say it's not about what it first appears to be about, but it's actually about something else. And so people started to go down the line and say, well, it's not a love song between two people, but it's a love song between God and Israel. Or then later, people started to say it's between Christ and the church. But there is a big problem with that approach to reading this book, if we just do that with it. Because what people then did was started to say, well, those funny sheep that were in that passage, well, they represent something else. Or this thing represents communion, or that thing represents baptism. And you get all these elaborate allegories of what this book was about. But you know what? Nobody could agree exactly what the allegory should be. Why is it dangerous to do that with this book? Because we can make it say whatever we want. We can layer our meaning on top of the Bible rather than say, actually, what is plainly there that comes out of God's word that we then have to address? So what is this book about? What is it about? Well, again, there are a whole number of views on this subject. I'm just going to plump for the one that the NIV goes for because that seems to be the most widespread one. And that is that it is a series of love poems, first and foremost. It's love poems between Solomon, the Shulamite woman who he has fallen in love with and marries during the book, and some commentary from his friends. Jeffrey Krantz, um, who's written on this book, he summarizes it like this. It's a ballad of love and longing. It's an exchange of love notes. It's a story of adoration, satisfaction, delight, and sexual desire. It's the tale of a young man, a young woman, sorry, preparing to marry her love, a handsome man who adores her. They describe their emotions, their passions, their appearances, their fears. They vulnerably display their love for one another, sometimes quite graphically. And so this is what we have before us. But there is also something beyond, something beyond the human. Not treating this book as an allegory, but treating it in the way that the New Testament actually talks about us as the church as being the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom. So as you look at this book, what we capture is just that glimpse of the love that Christ has for us and the love that we are called to have for Christ. And we'll get onto that a little bit later on. We've been praying um, already this morning for, for Brexit. Um, it seems to have just gone on and on and on, doesn't it? And we may be at a critical week, but we thought we've been there before, and we may not be at a critical week. It may just get kicked off into the long grass for another three months. We don't know yet. But one thing I've noticed over the past two years is that there are a lot of people who are very good at being against things. I don't know if you've noticed that. And you get politicians who say, we're, we're not prepared to go with this backstop arrangement. We want something else. They never seem to come up with what the something else is. And I think that's true in life, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever noticed that you're a good armchair critic. You know, I'm sure this room is full of the best armchair football managers that the world has ever seen. We would know how to get the worst team to win the Premier League. But we can't do it, really, can we? Because it's very easy to be critical. It's much harder to then come up with a positive way of looking at things and to put that into practice. You see, as Christians, it can be very difficult to have a positive vision to offer the world of sexuality, of relationships, of marriage, of singleness. And I have a fear that the church is far more widely known for being against things and for having abused sex and for getting torn up in all these kind of horrendous scandals that we see on our news 
than it is for having a positive vision of godly sexuality. So I want to suggest two problems that we will face as we look at this book. First one is we live in a sex-mad world. You may have noticed that. And I think um, it's something that has been going on since the 1960s. There have been changes in boundaries in terms of human sexuality. The last few years have seen that gather on a pace. And as Christians, we can sometimes not even understand the world that we're looking at, let alone know how to react towards it. Discussions about sexuality are everywhere, from mainstream media, school teaching, general conversation. And it's much more so now than it even was when I was a teenager, which is 25 years ago tomorrow since I've been a teenager. That's quite scary. Culture has become incredibly sexualized. Young people are having sex at younger ages than they were generations before. And as you look on the media, you can see the changes. Who remembers Blind Date with Cilla Black? Go on, put your hands up if you remember that. Exciting program that used to be on our TV screens. Doesn't that seem tame compared to Celebrity Love Island? I don't watch Celebrity Love Island, but from what I understand... Or things like The Bachelor or a lot of other programs that come on our screen that have a totally different sexualized level. Older established views of morality that perhaps underpin society generally, even if lots of people ignored them in the past, have largely disappeared. And the Christian teaching, the teaching of the Bible, has, I would suggest, totally been washed away in the culture that we live in. The only absolute that seems to be left and I've been reading this book this week um, I've not got all the way through it but it's called Divine Sex by Jonathan Grant who has been working on a book to actually give a really positive um, sort of image that we can give to the world about how God calls us to deal with sex and sexuality but he says that the only absolute that seems to be left is that whatever people get up to it needs to be consensual and that is the absolute that he believes we're left with And he says society as a whole increasingly sort of puts a heavy burden on sex itself as, if you like, a thing to underpin society and attraction and love, but at the same time seems to be dismissing commitment and marriage and faithfulness. And so it's well worth a read if you get the chance to read that book. Now, I could talk all this morning about problems. I could stand here and I could go into all kinds of details about Christian views on homosexuality, issues of transgender, things that have been sort of coming up in the news recently about asexuality, pansexuality, bisexuality, all these different words. And we do need, as a church, to talk about these things. Now, I believe it's absolutely essential. We won't just get the time to do all of that today. But we will come back to it. Perhaps in the autumn we need to do some more tough questions looking at some of these issues. But with the time that we have this morning and the complexity of these issues and the real risk of me belittling things that perhaps we're struggling with ourselves or with our biblical interpretation or with our friends and our family, I just want to stick with what is in Song of Songs. So what does Song of Songs teach us? Well, it teaches us, which is the traditional Christian view of marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that sex is only God-ordained for that relationship. And it's in that context that the Song of Songs illuminates sexual love, physical attraction. Now, I truly believe as well as Christians that when we take God's word seriously, and we don't just critique the world, but we actually look at God's word and say, what is here? We have something amazing to offer society. 
We have something that is actually God-ordained, God-breathed. We have a vision of human sexuality and human behavior and human relationships that is over and above the fragmentation of the world that we see around us. It offers us a vision for human romance. Sex, emotional dependency, singleness, all the rest of it that God has ordained. And for me, that is a very hopeful thing. We shouldn't look at this area and feel despairing, but we should see, well, God has already spoken hope into our midst. That was problem one. Second problem, we have struggled to be positive in the past. I grew up um, as a Christian going to youth groups and went to a really good youth group um, as as a teenager and had some really quite good youth leaders. But the only problem was, is whenever we came to talk about sex and relationships, which all youth groups do, don't they? All Christian youth groups will do that from time to time. It was always cast in the negative. It was always, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that, you mustn't do the other. And so I had a long list of things that as a teenager I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing. But you know what? I was never given a positive vision of what God had. I was never framed in, well, this is the beauty and the holiness of being single. And this is the beauty and the holiness of being in a married relationship. These are both God-honoring ways to live. And they are both, in different ways, beautiful and intensely holy. You see, we can't have one without the other, can we? We can't have a, a biblical view of marriage without a biblical view of singleness, and vice versa. But in the Western church, sadly, we've been influenced by a lot of Greek thinking over the years. And it's been around for as long as the New Testament has been around, really. Now, there's a particular um, thinker in the early church that I do really like. I think John thinks I must know him personally, and he's my mentor. And it's this man, Augustine of Hippo, who looked very like Jeremy Corbyn, actually. (laughs) Now, he had a lot of very good things to say about all kinds of different issues. But before he became a Christian, and he had an absolutely radical conversion to Christ, a really radical conversion... Um, But before he was a Christian, to say he was promiscuous was a bit of an understatement. He had all kinds of different relationships. And so when he became a Christian, what happened was he sort of knee-jerked against all that and more or less said, well, the body itself is evil. You know, sex is the thing which brings through original sin into the human life. And so actually, the only reason for ever having sex is for procreation. And he took a very dim view of the human body. And so what we get coming into Christian thinking, because he's probably the most influential Christian thinker ever, probably. What happened was this kind of thinking crept into the church. And so you see things like priests becoming celibate, having it enforced on them, and saying, you must live this way. This is how God wants you to live. And we get right the way through the history of the church, this kind of view of human sexuality. And so we can tend to view things negatively. So if I put that passage up there, that Paul says from 1 Corinthians 7, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We can read it and think, well, if you're married, you're weak-willed and lustful. (laughs) Actually, that isn't what Paul is doing. Paul is not downgrading marriage. He's upgrading singleness. He's saying that actually, if God calls you to be single, that is the highest calling you can have, because that actually means that you can serve Christ without hindrance, without somebody else to be thinking about. But we can read it negatively. You know, we don't celebrate singleness enough. I think it's something we need to do a lot more of. And it's certainly something is we should never negatively spin marriage or singleness. See, the message of Scripture, I believe, is that there are two ways 
an adult can live in a holy and God-honoring way. Singly and married. The problems only come is when we try and blur those boundaries and we start to include sex into singleness or take sex out of marriage and marriage then sort of becomes something quite different. So let's have a look at this passage. That's enough of an intro. Chapter 6, an overview. You might want to have the Bible in front of you. Verse 1. The message of Song of Songs is of people in love. And it has a lot to teach us and to teach our contemporary world because it is an equal partnership of desire and romance. Now, there is a bit of a story going through Song of Songs, and it sort of starts off with them um, getting to know each other. It's then in chapter 3, there is a bridal procession, and then it goes forward and um, the, the sort of the, the, the story continues. Don't expect it to be a Mills and Boone classic if you read it later on this afternoon. The storyline is a bit thin. Um, but in chapter 6, we get a horticultural twist because Solomon goes down and does some gardening. And we see in verse 3 the statement from the woman. I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. What does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us that in this relationship, there's mutuality. There is respect. There is a desire for one another. See, marriage in God's economy is not about one domineering the other, but it's about that mutuality, that mutuality. If you're married this morning, there is so much I feel we can learn from this book about honoring one another, about not seeking to control, about keeping romance alive, about not allowing the mundane to take over. Now, if you are married today, can I encourage you to take that relationship that you have with utmost seriousness? I'm not talking about taking yourself seriously. There's a big difference. You know, whenever I take myself seriously, one of my boys normally takes the mickey out of me, and I suddenly go plunging right back down to earth and see actually who I am. But what we can do is not take ourselves seriously, but take that relationship seriously. And say, this is a relationship that once you've made those commitments to one another, that God has ordained it as holy. And it's a relationship that needs time spent. Do the marriage course, whatever it is, to ensure that that relationship is strengthened. Then verses 4 to 9. Solomon has another excuse, if you like, to praise um, his beloved. And now we read some rather strange analogies. I don't know if they hopped out of the page to you as we read it before. You know, I don't think I've ever written a love poem. I've certainly never written Claire a love poem, have I? She's shaking her head. But if I were to write one and say, Claire, your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. And I'm so impressed that you have them all. You know, what a sign of beauty that you don't just have one in the middle and that's the lot. We would think that was rather odd because we do not generally compliment people in relation to animals. You know, you don't go saying to somebody this morning, oh, you've got, you know, you've got a neck like a swan. And, you know, we, we just don't use those kind of analogies. But if someone were to say, you know, you're beautiful, you look like a movie star, it clicks, doesn't it? We know exactly what it means. All these strange images are is context. It's nothing else. It's context. It's the way that people used to compliment one another. And to say you had a full set of teeth was high praise indeed. <laughs> Verse 9, he calls her unique. Why does he love her? Is it just because she's beautiful? Is it just purely physical attraction? 
No, it is far, far deeper. It's attraction for the very nature of who she is, her character. We do live in a highly visual culture, don't we? We live in a culture where images of people, beautiful people, are often coming at us. And we have a whole industry in this world that billions of pounds a year are spent either attempting to make us look beautiful or attempting to keep us looking younger than perhaps we really are. But you know, thankfully, God doesn't call us just to look at the physical. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you are married today, do you notice your wife, your husband, above all else, above all others? I'm not just talking about physical traction, although that is part of it, and that is very much part of it in Song of Songs. But for all those reasons that you fell in love in the first place, do you still notice those if you're married this morning? For the people of Israel, untainted as they were by Greek thinking, they had no problem at all in talking in a very unembarrassed way about physical attraction. You will get that if you read the rest of this book. They see it as holy and right and healthy in the godly context of marriage. And it's true, isn't it? As human beings, we are made with the capacity to love one another. And the Greeks, they did have some good things going for them. They had all kinds of different words for love. We talk about agape love, that brotherly love that we can have for one another. But the love that is in here as well, it's that, but it's also the eros love. The love that is between a husband and wife, that erotic physical attraction love. And you know, it's only sin that turns holy things into dirty things. It's only when we misuse what God has called good and holy that actually we run into problems. We also see, if you go further on in verses 11 and 12, we see that the woman also wants to say very similar things to the man as the man says to the woman. It's perhaps not as obvious in that passage, but if you look back to um, chapter 5, look at verse 12, where she's talking about Solomon. It says, His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. Again, strange words. I'm not sure whether it's his eyes that have been washed in milk or the doves, but anyway. But again, they are odd comparisons, aren't they? But neither objectify the other without that mutuality. It goes exactly both ways. You know, there's part of me that just wishes that as followers of Jesus, we could recapture some of the innocence and the beauty that we find in this book. That we would keep our eyes focused on God and in doing so lead lives that are either married or single in God-honoring ways. So what have we said so far? Singleness and marriage are both holy and honored by God. Physical, sexual, and emotional attraction is holy in God's right context. The image of marriage in Song of Songs is a godly one. However, and there is a however coming, because Solomon, who is the author of this book, didn't quite stay on this road for the whole of his life. And so we get a very painful verse in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives, and he had many of them, turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. See, good as Song of Songs is, and helpful as it is as a godly picture, it is also a call for us never to be complacent. Whether married, whether single, to never be complacent because sin 
can easily attack us. We can be attacked by ourselves, by the enemy, by temptation from other people. It's very easy, isn't it, for other other things to capture our gaze, for other things to step into our line of vision. Now, it might be another human being. It might be that it's suddenly that person who appears, who you're suddenly realizing you're becoming infatuated with. But it might be something else. You might be suddenly infatuated with work. Dare I say it, and I'm going to say it, because I've seen too many Christian leaders whose marriages have fallen apart, we can become infatuated by church itself. I'm not talking about God, but by the institution of church, and put that in front of an important married relationship. Even things that God meant for our nurture and growth can capture us in a way that takes our eyes off God himself. You know, Solomon was the wisest man ever to have lived, yet he got this wrong. He got this wrong. His eyes went off God, and as his eyes went off God, they went on to other things. It's just a reminder that actually, you know, marriages do fail. Because as human beings, we fail. And it's a stark reminder that at the cross of Calvary, Jesus died for our sin, for our failure. So if we have failed in any of these areas in the past, there is forgiveness, there is restoration, there is no condemnation. You know, our chains have fallen off. In Christ, we can be made free. So if today, as we've already said, if you are single, take that really seriously. If you are married, can I encourage you to take that really seriously? Life is so much simpler when we do things God's way. It is so much simpler. But I also want to suggest something else as we come to an end of this passage. And it's about a glimpse beyond. I don't want to suggest we allegorize this book. But there is a metaphor that is used time and time again in the New Testament about us as the church being the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom. Look at these beautiful verses from Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. As church... We are the bride of Christ. As church, we are called to be holy. As church, we are called to be ready for that glorious day when Jesus returns with all power and glory. Just as in a marriage, we're called to make commitments to one another that are lifelong. So discipleship is the same call. It can be very easy to treat Jesus like an on and off partner. You're like somebody who, perhaps when things are either bad or good, we sort of pick up and then drop. But the call for each of us today, married, single, whatever, um, however we are this morning, is to really put Jesus first. He's our Lord. He's our model, our Savior. He's our wisdom. He needs to be our everything. So I want to leave us just with three things very briefly for us to reflect on as we go from this place. Firstly, today, if you are single and you're here this morning, it may be that you are single because you know that that is actually how God wants you to stay. Paul was single that way. He had no desire to get married. He knew that God called him to be that way. If that is you, can I encourage you to live a God-honoring life in that way? Or perhaps you're single, but actually you're wanting to get married. That is a good place to be as well. But again, can I encourage you to live whatever life that you have in a God-honoring way. Is Christ enough for you?
Are you content with who you are as a child of God? Secondly, if you're married this morning, is your spouse, your husband, your wife, are they enough for you? Are you content? Or have you got eyes that are wandering? might be to another human, it might be to something else. Are there things today that actually, going away from this morning, you need to put right? Firstly, with God, and then within that relationship. Thirdly, and this is for all of us, is Christ enough? You know, we sing it, don't we? We sing all kinds of songs that claim that Christ is enough. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. Is it true? Are we lifelong disciples of Jesus? Or are we treating Jesus a bit like an on-and-off partner? I think this book has an awful lot to teach us. So can I encourage you? We're just going to spend a few moments just in silence in a minute. But can I encourage you to go away and read the whole of it this afternoon? And say, Lord, what is it that you are saying to me in my situation about how to live in a God-honoring way?